builds Canada. Canada is a country of immigrants. Canada needs immigrants to survive. Put refugees aside, the immigration minister has established a target for this year alone of 400,000 new immigrants because they know the country needs it to survive. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hello, Chris. Great to be back with you, Scotty, here on Canusa Street. Great to be back with you, and we are in our pop-up studio here in Mexico City, and at the North Capitol Forum, the U.S.-Mexico Foundation has a wonderful convening of civil society and policymakers from three countries, and today we're talking to, uh, or this episode, we're talking to people from the United Nations uh, about refugees and human migration, a huge issue here in North America and around the world. And so with that, Chris, uh, we're so honored to have our guests. Let me invite you to introduce them properly. Sure. Thank you very much, Scotty. And it's an exciting group. We have Ms. Rima Jamus, who is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Representative to Canada. And uh, so you know the situation in Canada. She served as Deputy Director of the UNHCR Bureau for the Middle East and North Africa, covering operations in North Africa, Yemen, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, and Israel. Uh, she's uh, also served as legal counsel to the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, which I think is very interesting. Uh, it is a nice touch. Also, we have uh, the uh, Giovanni Lepri, who is United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Representative to Mexico, where we are now. Born and raised in Milan, he, where he got a degree from the Milan State University on Political Science. He specialized in international relations and law, got a master's in public policy from the University of London, where he studied economics, and attended the Forced Migration School at, uh, at Oxford, which is very impressive. He's had a UN career that's gone from New York at the Economic and Social Affairs Department, and later joining the World Food Program uh, running a program in Honduras. Uh, he has had an amazing series of world-spanning jobs serving in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Chad, Sudan, Mozambique, Colombia, uh, Italy, and Greece. Um, and he's been here in Mexico uh, since 2019. Finally, uh, and I I guess uh, I always I put the American last, but truly I'm only re going in the order of your last names alphabetically. Um, Matthew Reynolds is a UNHCR representative to the United States and the Caribbean. Uh, Mr. Reynolds' career includes more than 30 years in government service, uh, humanitarian response, oversight, and management. He assumed the role of representative to the United States and the Caribbean in June of 2017. But before joining UNHCR, Mr. Reynolds served as the North America representative for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees in the Near East. He has served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Legislative Affairs. And uh, in that capacity, he was the principal congressional advisor to the Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, uh, which uh, is, is a good friend of the Wilson Center and, uh, and a really great person. So with that, welcome all of you. And uh, Scotty, you get to lead off the questioning. Well, thank you. Welcome all three of you. And thank you for joining us. I'll just start with one question and each of you can take this anywhere you want. But we're here in Mexico City. Uh, we're at the North Capital Forum, where United States, Canada, Mexico are talking about all the issues about what uh, uh, Enrique Perret likes to call the North American way. Um, why are you here? And what are you, each of you, hoping to get out of this conversation? And maybe we'll start with you. 
Yeah, thank you, Scotty, and thank you, Chris, and thank you for inviting us to to share our view. I think the the, the reason, the main reason why we are here. Um, was mentioned many times yesterday in the opening, and is inclusion. The word inclusion and the word of having this this big, fascinating economic and social space, which is 500 million people, the North America, which is includes Mexico, Canada, and and the U.S., and the fact that refugees can be part of this space and can be included in the society and can be part a productive and uh, part of the society. Uh, we found this is an incredible opportunity. And, uh, and 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 the three of us, we are we're not only convinced because we are UNHCR representatives that this is possible, but because we, we are seeing it, we are seeing it happening. Maybe what I just like to say, we're seeing it happening in a much smaller scale than what it would be possible if some adjustment would be made. So to respond to the second part of your question, what we expect is that this view of how refugees can contribute to society can be broadened. And I think also, and the last thing, how we can change a bit the narrative. I think that the progress has been made as considering refugees, first of all, as people, second, as people that have fled their countries against their will. But this positive spin on their contribution to society and the fact that they're human beings like, 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 like you and me and like, and like us, I think needs a little bit more more work work to be done. So those kind of forums, we are a bit out of our comfort zone. This is very yes. much of a North Capital Forum. It's not a humanitarian environment, but we are invited to, to, to bring our perspective. And I have to say that I felt already very, very much welcome in this, in this, in, in, in this forum. And I hope that the next couple of days we can continue to work and there will be curiosity also from, from, from different sectors of the society to, to know more, understand more how this vision of refugees act as a positive element in the society, in the whole society can, can be, can be strengthened. I agree, Giovanni, and I was thinking that um, if one outcome of this conference and of our discussions can be that people in the United States, Canada, and Mexico start thinking about refugees and migration as a competitive advantage, as opposed to something that is a problem to be dealt with, that would be a wonderful way to uh, acknowledge reality about these about these people. Uh, Rima, let's go to you and what. Same question about what what you're hoping to to get out of this conference and 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 your perspective. Well, I think we've reached a very critical tipping point um, as the United Nations and looking at at forced displacement globally. We've reached milestones in terms of scale and proportion that we never thought we'd get to with over a hundred million people in the world now who have been forced to leave their homes. And there's a recognition that, you know, the United Nations, host countries, we can't do it alone. Um, and we have to broaden our partnerships. And we have this this notion of allyship that was talked yes. about yesterday. In it's the not just about manufacturing. Absolutely yeah. not. Um, you know, we're at a point now where, where the demand and the need for solutions for these people so far outstrips what the UN and humanitarians can deliver. And a recognition that we really need to innovate um, and to find solutions that that play to the strengths and the competitive advantages of all 
all elements of society. And so, you know, in this conference, you have a wealth of expertise, knowledge, innovation, and talent. We're looking at how we can tap into that to find solutions for refugees and displaced people, but also to come here and share what we know, which is that, you know, there is a solid economic case for integration and inclusion. And we know that refugees give back and they give back and contribute uh, at proportions sometimes, which far exceed even what native-born Canadians or Americans or, or, or others in the world may be giving back to society. So we're here to basically say, work with us, help us develop new innovations and solutions for some of these problems, which, you know, cross borders and are not contained to any one region or country anymore. Let's work together to find solutions and bring the best of what we have to the table so that we can do so, um, you know, for the benefit of humanity. Absolutely. And Matthew, you, you've got a... a a unique background in some ways on this. You've worked in the United States House, the Senate, the State Department. You were confirmed by the Senate and now uh, the UN. How do you think about um, this question of the movement of people? And in particular, you know, what we, what Chris and I talked about in a, in a recent podcast um, is that the largest movement of people is coming from Venezuela right now, 6.8 million, and that directly impacts what's happening here in North America. How do you think about, how do you think about these issues given your uh, government background in, in Washington, D.C.? Sure, I think, um, and to sort of be, the advantage of being the third here is I can also say I associate myself with my two colleagues Marx and agree with them 100%. Um, so that's kind of the, 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 the bureaucratic It's more interesting answer. if you disagree, but we'll, we'll allow it. You're on this, on this one, on this one, I'm going to agree. But I think um, for me and, and the importance here is to educate um, this, the people on the move, whether it's Venezuela, um, whether it's um, across the Mediterranean, through Mexico to the United States, um, from the United States to Canada, where there is irregular movement. Um, it's a very complex situation. Um, it's it it is uh, and it is filled with misinformation. It is it is highly politicized. So I think an important role for UNHCR and for us and for why I'm excited to be here and um, is is to show um, to help bring that education to help describe what we do, who these people are, why they are of value, um, and what is a refugee and an asylum seeker as opposed to, you know, this is just one road of many that um, a flow of people take. There, There's labor migration, there's all other kinds of, of roads that are taken. Um, so for us, it's to focus and let people know um, what it is we do and then why we do it. And I think it's important because there are two, there's, this is a humanitarian issue. I mean, at the beginning of the day, the people on the move, regardless of who they are, are people. We right. like to think of them as statistics, as numbers, as, as political pawns, but they are actually people. Yeah. Um, and some of those people, you know, may, may, um, we were heard, heard from the U.S. ambassador this morning about a family he met um, on the El Sal on the El Paso Juarez border. You know, but at the end of the day, who knows who those individuals may turn out to be? I mean, some of the some of the great leaders in the United States. I just think of two two predecessor secretaries of states, um, Henry exactly right. Madeleine Albright, Henry Kissinger. We're both we're both refugees. So um, I think it's really uh, for me important to to make those to help educate on those distinctions and educate the value that that people bring. But it's particularly important for the United States and Canada because we are countries of, of immigration. And some some came as refugees, some came through family unification, some came through other opportunities, but we need to appreciate the value um, of the human. Well, and not to get too 
you know, literally biblical here, Chris, but, you know, there is this idea that that has been passed down for uh, thousands of years, whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, this, this, thus you do to me, right? So to your point, all three of you, that these are our people, these are our brothers and sisters, uh, I think is important. I appreciate you bringing it because it is not just a statistic. It's not just a political game to be played uh, in any country. It's, it's quite real. So appreciate that very much. Much. Chris? Yeah, I'm going to work in the reverse order. I want to talk a little bit about the economics of migration. And um, particularly with refugees, we, we have this old idea that they come and then they go. They go back home at some point. But often there's a prolonged period of being in the country and maybe we want to integrate them into our regular society. When it comes to economic contributions, things like credentialing and recognizing the training they may have had elsewhere so they can actually perform to their best potential is a challenge in all three of our countries. And we haven't really dealt with it in USMCA or NAFT or any of that. So let me start with, with you, Matthew. Uh, how does the U.S. get uh, migration, new people, uh, into a productive contribution in the economy, and how important is that contribution to the United States? Um, it's very important, and I'm going to speak directly to the forcibly displaced, because as you know, like I just said, there's a whole different, there's lots of different forms of immigration, and honestly, we have enough on our hands with forcibly displaced and refugees coming to the U.S. not to handle so many of the other categories. But, you know, um, First, it's important to note there are, there are various kinds of forced displaced that come to the United States. You have asylum seekers um, who come oftentimes across the southern border of the United States from through Mexico, from Mexico, um, uh, as well as we have refugees that are resettled, which is also an important program in Canada. It's important to note that only 1% of, of, of all refugees are even would be considered for third country resettlement, and the number that actually get resettled are very low. Um, I think I'm going to take a circuitous a way to answer your question, which is to say that um, there was recently a study done by the Global Center, uh, the Center for Global Development, which looked at what happened when the United States in fiscal year um, 16 had a had about 86, 85,000 refugees resettled every year. Over the course of the next four couple of years, down to 20, the number dropped um, significantly. So there were 300,000 missing new um, uh, refugees coming into the United States. 300,000 over those years, if you take those numbers together. What was the economic impact of those refugees, those missing refugees, um, and, and missing affirmative asylum uh, cases? The negative loss, the impact, was approximately $9.1 billion in economic activity, wow. and about $2 billion in tax revenue um, for the refugee stream, and a loss of about $8.9 billion and $1.5 billion in tax revenue for the reduction in the asylum stream. So, you know, it's important, I think it's important uh, to note that all of these, um, you know, all of these people coming, they're all consumers. Most are or become workers, most are or become taxpayers, and most are or become investors. So it's not like the political pundits argue that this is a, a, a burden. In fact, not including them is a great expense. Exclusion yeah. is an expense. Um, now, in the U.S., there is a, a refugee resettlement program. So it's an organized program of which UNHCR provides essentially a long list of people that we feel are very vulnerable and in need of resettlement. The United States government makes the choices. 
as to who comes into the United States. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in the world that the UN, the United States, that UNHCR imposes refugees on countries. We do not. It's it's, it's much like a menu, um, and and the individual countries choose who it is that that complies with their laws and their, their requirements. Um, um, and then there's a process, a system through both U.S. government support and then through a wide range of refugee agencies that that help. And we find that integration um, really has worked, and that most refugees and asylum seekers actually integrate and um, uh, get into the society and are more productive faster than many others. So um, it's a win-win. Well, they're motivated, right? Once you get here, you came through hell to get here, and you're motivated to make it work for your family, it seems to me. It's just so what you're saying that makes perfect sense just at a human level. Rima, is that the same for Canada? What what are you seeing there? I'm really happy that you asked it. Um, And I'm holding in my hand something that your listeners can't see, but it's a report that we did in UNHCR Canada, which is based on government statistics, census data that we gathered in Canada. The report is asking the question, are refugees good for Canada? And we'll put a link to that on our our, uh, our webpage. Excellent. And the answer is a resounding yes. Um, not only do refugees come to the country and embrace the opportunity that they've been given to, to, to have safety and protection, um, but they actually contribute significantly to the social, the economic, and cultural diversity of the country, which is something in Canada we really pride ourselves on. Um, I'm going to share a few statistics because I think they're very telling. Um, you talked about people coming and, and whether or not they stay. Some of the evidence that we have now shows that not only do they stay, but they pay back in taxes, both income taxes and sales tax, far more than they ever received in in government support. They're homeowners at a higher proportion than native-born Canadians. So after 10 years, two-thirds of refugees become homeowners. And what does that tell us? It tells us First, it's a sign of of financial health to be able to make that kind of a purchase. But secondly, it's a commitment to the community. You are there to stay and to give back to the country that took you in. You talked about people struggling and, and, and really making use of that opportunity. Well, we see it play out in the children of refugees who actually at a higher rate than native-born Canadians are completing higher education. They, they graduate from university at higher levels, um, you know, first at the entry level, but also at master's degree level. So they're embracing, they're taking the most that they can from this opportunity and enriching the society and, and giving back. Um, they're also a lot younger than Canadians. And in Canada, you know, we have a small population, but we also have a, a rapidly aging population. And so you're, you're getting groups of people now coming at a younger age with a longer lifespan, hopefully, to contribute through the workforce, which is something we really need in Canada because we've got nearly a million vacancies in the job market. And a lot of these are persistent and we just cannot fill them uh, with Canadians. So overall, we're seeing very positive outcomes um, and, and we're making the case and the data is making the case that refugees are contributing and very good for the economy. Well, and somehow, before we uh, go to Giovanni, somehow in the political contrast, it seems to me, between Canada and the United States about how uh, our two countries and cultures view uh, 
newcomers. It's completely different. In Canada, it's it's relatively accepted. And in the United States, it's controversial. Is that, would you two agree with that, Rima? Well, I think Canada really prides itself on being an open, hospitable country. It's a multicultural country. Um, but it also, you know, there, in addition to wanting to be a... But the U.S. should too, and yet we don't, and our neighbors do. Well, I think Weird. That, <laughs> I, I think that there there has to be a recognition that Canada has a, a, a bit of a geographical difference than, than the U.S. US. The U.S. serves as a big buffer in between. So Canada doesn't see the same kind of um, traffic, let's say, that the U.S. may have to reckon with. But there is a recognition that multiculturalism enriches society and it builds Canada. Canada is a country of immigrants. Canada needs immigrants to survive. Put refugees aside. The immigration minister has established a target for this year alone of 400,000 new immigrants because they know the country needs it to survive. Well, and Chris and I had the premier of Nova Scotia on last December on this podcast, and his top priority was growing his population. And uh, they're not going to be able to do it uh, just locally. <laughs> they're going to have to they're, they're going to have to have immigrants. Uh, well, I want to pick this up and, and find out about the country where we are now, which is Mexico. Mexico. And, you know, Canada, the U.S. often feel like the world is an ocean away. And so people don't just come by. But Mexico is in many ways on the conduit. It's on the way for people to come by land and, and so close to so situations like Venezuela. How is the economic contribution of, of migration seen here? And just as a personal comment, I, I've come to Mexico City over the years and I'm always impressed. And I know it's a big city, but to see how diverse the population becomes more so each time I come. So tell us a little bit about, about how Mexico is viewing uh, the economic contribution of their migrants. Thank you for this question. I love this question, as, as Rima also mentioned. I'm worried because being an Italian national, I tend to speak a lot. And this question, <laughs> I could speak for an hour, really. Um, the first quick answer is Mexico is becoming more and more a country of destination. Mexico has been historically seen as a country of transit, as a country actually of emigration out of Mexico and is becoming more and more a country where people, and I, as, as Matt said before, I will focus on, on refugees, on people forcibly displaced, are seeing Mexico as an opportunity to rebuild their life. Now, to rebuild their life, they need, they need the right tools to do it. So there is a responsibility, and I think Mexico is, is, is progressing in that sense, but there is more that has to be done in terms of giving the right tools. The right tools are documentation, this is very important, is financial inclusion, the possibility of actually getting a bank, opening a bank account to get your, 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 your salary, and having your access to services as refugees being guaranteed. So in that sense, I think there is a, there is a responsibility. But at the same time, and this is Matt also mentioned before the education, and I think I li there is a sentence I, li I like, a phrase I like to repeat and repeat it, that is, ignorance is the best friend of xenophobia. If you don't know, yeah. you tend to say, I don't want to know, I, I, to, to push away from you. But knowing what is the reality in terms of numbers, opportunities, in terms of what my colleagues already mentioned, the contribution, the real contribution of refugees to the society. We, we're going to have a panel in, in half an hour, and in the panel, we have a refugee. And she's a, she's a Venezuelan refugee nurse, which not only contributed during COVID here in Mexico as a refugee in the health sector, but now she's, she's, she's working and she's rebuilding her life uh, here in Mexico. And as, as Daniela, there are thousands that already are today in Mexico being integrated in the society, working in the formal 
sector. They're not they're not working uh, in the little uh, informal business, but they're working. And we have as a program here with more than four hundred companies, some big big multinational and some small companies which are recruiting refugees, and they are not only happy to do it because they think that is a good socially and, and, and demonstrated that they're doing something good, but because they, they see that, first of all, refugees tend to rotate less, so there is less turnover, so there is more stability. Right. They're very committed, and they become part of the, of, of the business community quite quickly. So I'd like to just to say that I don't... Uh, I like the win-win, but I would say this is a win-win-win. Because the refugees win because they have a second chance, they can they can reestablish their lives. The society wins because it's also part of stabilization and responding to uh, to a need. And companies also are are, are directly receiving a benefit. And maybe the last, and we have also uh, students. We have um, we have now actively fifty one university students. They have top grades. They come from Honduras, from Salvador, from from Venezuela. They have the top grades and. Uh, ten days ago, the, the German president was here visiting. Steinmeier was here visiting, and he wanted here to meet them. He was here in, in Mexico City, and mm-hmm. and he asked me to 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 meet them because they they have a scholarship from the German government. Oh, nice. And I was proud. I was as proud as I am with my children um, <laughs> with those students because they were articulated, clear-minded. But the most important thing they all said: we want to give back to the society what we receive. We are very privileged. Not many got this chance. So we want to give back. So you see those young people getting part of the Mexican society and wanting to give back. Well, so I think this is this is telling. It's it is telling. And and just a just a quick follow up there. You know, if you were to ask anyone in the United States, Canada, or anywhere, do you need more nurses? Would you like more nurses? The answer is heck yes. Ask any mayor, ask any county commissioner. Yes, we need more nurses. Um, so I think part of this, and I appreciate the work all three of you are doing, is about how we communicate what the opportunity is, not just what the challenge is, but what the opportunity is. Chris, I think we're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, back to you with a really interesting conversation with our colleagues from the UNHCR. Absolutely. I can't wait, but first a break. The Wilson Center Canada Institute is a proud co-producer of the Canusa Street Podcast. For more insights and analysis from the world's leading think tank on Canada-U.S. relations, visit our site at www.wilsoncenter.org. That's www.wilsoncenter.org. Excellent. Welcome back to Canusa Street. We are here with three representatives of the UN High Commission on Refugees, which colloquially we think of as the UN's refugee agency. Um, we have the representative of the United States, the representative of Canada, the representative to Mexico, and we're having a fascinating conversation about refugees. Now, I'm a bit of a nerd. I, I know a bit of a nerd, Chris. Oh wow! <laughs> I know that the original UN Convention 1951, really dealing with displacement in Europe. Then we had the 67 update, and one of the things that came in the 1967 version was a notion of safe third country, and that became a live issue here in North America as it became the foundation of President Trump's management of Central Americans coming through Mexico, and it became controversial in Canada because there was a challenge to Canadian designation of the United States as a safe third country. that just brings me to the obstacles, the obstacles that we face in achieving, you know, the potential of 
refugees as they come into our societies. And I'm going to go back in reverse order and start with you, Giovanni. Uh, how how do the obstacles stand in the way of, and what can we do to, to really help refugees be as con- successful contributors as, as they can be? Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I think that this is a, a, a very critical and profound question. And I think we have to look at it at different perspective. One, I would go back to the question of the, the cultural change, the, the, the mentality change. We need we need to make sure that the society and the society's in integrity is not only the authorities, not only the, the, the church or civil society dealing with the issues, not is not only uh, the humanitarian component, but it includes the private sector, it includes the society as, as, as a whole. Understand first, when it comes to refugees, we are talking about human rights. We are talking about people that have been, so their basic human rights violated. And so when they come to a society, one of the big efforts is actually how do you uh, restore those rights and allow them really to, 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 to enjoy safety, security, and, and integration. And this is a lot to do with also with education. University play a very important role. Media, the media play a critical role. Um, schools, a very important role. That, once that is, uh, let's say, is taken care of, I think that the, the second is what are the bureaucratic procedural impediments that actually make this journey difficult. And I would just, just start from the first point. Mexico last year received 131,000 asylum claims, which brought Mexico to the third place worldwide as new asylum claims, just after the U.S. and Germany. Third. U.S. Who's first? U.S. or Germany? US, Germany. And then, then Mexico. And Mexico wow. went very close to Germany. It was for, just for asylum claims. Yeah. Asylum claims. So the first, the third country in the world. And the, the, the Commission for Refugees, which is the institution that deal with receiving the claim, assessing the claim and adjudicating the claim, which is the basic for any refugee to start really the process of integration where we talk about, was an institution that was used to deal with 1,000 claims a year, only two oh, or wow. three years ago or four years ago. So moved from 1,000 to 130. So the workload has increased dramatically. Dramatically. But the bureaucracy has remained the same. The growth and the funding that is given to this to this mm-hmm. institution has also remained more or less the same. So I think there, if we want fair and efficient systems that can actually adjudicate the claims and allow the second part of the process, which is the integration, becoming active contributor to the society to happen, then resources have to give it to be given to the institutions that needs to deal because not units here. I mean, we are here. We are an international organization here to help the government and the society to respond to their obligations and to actually respond to the needs of refugees. But there is a limit to what we can do. So I think that that part is important. Another one, and I would just go to a very very specific point: a refugee in Mexico receive a permanent residency document. Okay. But many banks, and I just spoke to several banks here since yesterday and today, and it's fascinating that we have the chance to talk to the CEOs sure. of those banks. Um, when they scroll down their menu and uh, of which documents you, you, you can use to, be, to open a bank account, that specific document that, that does not appear. Just oh, that seems like that seems system. like an easy thing but to so fix. The person that is sitting in front of you and is dealing with your request to open your bank account would just open up the scroll down menu and say, "Sorry, come back with your passport." Mm-hmm. And since you are a refugee, most you likely don't have a passport. Yeah. So those type of and and I like the way you say it. It seems like a pretty easy things. Yeah. To well, solve. it's straightforward. Well, it's understandable. In the details. It's in the details. So yeah. when you put together all those 
details, and the, the, the viewers cannot, the, the listener cannot see my, my, my quotes, but the, then you, you see that if there is a good coordination and a good process and a good connection by the different aspects of institution and society, then this can be much smoother. We have today... Well, so, sorry, let me just inter interrupt you there. Banks like to make money. This is, something, this is something they can fix. Yeah. And one of the things I love about the North Capital Forum is it is a combination of not only government agencies and civil society, but also private sector. So uh, after we leave this recording, um, I'm going to go talk to some bankers because that's a good, that is practical and that's one small thing that can be done. Anyway. And if we can add one point to the banks is that what we are talking about is bank accounts that are only done, made to receive your salary from the companies to the bank account. We're not talking about credits yet. We're not talking about risk-taking of credit cards. We're talking about that salary account. So really the risk for the banks is, is minimal. And the, it goes with education, clarity on, on processes, and then a little bit of will to move forward. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing the bank because actually we move forward with the banks, but I'm just using this example because I think it's, it's one of the typical examples on how something that is procedural is relatively small, but if it's not solved, uh, make all the process much more. Well, and it's an ed it's an education process, as Matthew said at the beginning. Chris, we've got about five more minutes, so why don't well, you speed through? I want to hear about through. Canada, and, and yeah. Rima, tell us a little bit about how this is playing out. Well, I, I think there's a fundamental recognition, as I said earlier, that we need immigration and we need refugees to sustain the economy and to keep Canada growing. And I can give you an example of, of um, you know, one particular innovation that can, the Canadian government saw some impediments and, and it's taken corrective action now uh, for their benefit, really, and for the benefit of refugees. We, we talked about labor mobility yesterday at this conference, and Canada has piloted a new program where they seek to match up skilled refugees with employers in Canada so that they come to Canada. These are in sectors where, we, as I said, we had persistent labor shortages. You mentioned nurses. We've had to close emergency rooms in hospitals across the country because they don't have enough staff to keep them open. That is, in a country, you know, where the national health care system is, is a point of pride, that's a really bad place to be. Yep. And so there's a recognition that you have skilled nurses around the world who can come to Canada, but not as refugees who are resettled. Settled. They're coming in with job offers and they're coming in as economic. It's great. Let me just jump in, Rima. I agree it's a great policy, but it is slow as molasses in January in Canada to get there. It's a, from the business leaders I talk to, two year wait. That's that's to, so Canada, right idea, moving at the pace of government. So Do you it, it, agree or disagree? That's 100% true. And okay. part of the reason why employers are throwing their hands up and saying, we need people, how can we make this happen faster? Yeah. And so they're tweaking the system as they, as they encounter these kinds of obstacles. So now, for instance, you know, if somebody has documentation issues, if because they don't have their passport because they fled for their lives, or they don't have certificates that prove that they have a certain education or, or things like that, there are now facilitation measures that help them to overcome that as administrative fixes for that. And so now we're moving closer to a six to nine month target and still can be improved and strengthened. But really what it means and why we're so excited about it is because they're coming in as economic migrants, allowing us to save those valuable resettlement places for really, really vulnerable refugees. And we can use those places for another family because this, this one family came in with jobs and they're coming in as, as immigrants. And I don't mean to be flippant, but six to nine months also still too long. If this 
this were if this were Amazon with a new customer, it would be six to nine seconds. So so tech. Not my point here is technology can help tech in terms of uh, understanding who people are and what the risks are, et cetera. Chris, Chris, back to you. Um, Matthew, I, I, the U.S. as Giovanni said the number one global recipient, uh, just in terms of volume. Have we learned anything from that? And as we talk about obstacles for integration and helping people achieve their potential from refugee to you know citizen, or at least contributors to the, the host economy, how is the U.S. doing and what can the U.S. do to try to uh, improve outcomes? Well, I think um, for the U.S. it actually has a pretty uh, high standard, um, and I think one of the aspirations of the current administration in the United States to, to resettle 125,000, um, up to 125,000 um, refugees through the resettlement program, which was just certified um, yesterday by, by President Biden for the next fiscal year. Um, is to be a leader in the world, to show, look, this is actually beneficial to you, and to encourage others, particularly across the Atlantic, who also have plenty of capacity, as, been, as frankly was shown by the influx of Ukrainian refugees, um, and how quickly they have been able to have been brought in. And it didn't crash the system, which apparently certain uh, small amounts of migrants over and, and refugees over the Mediterranean was as... That's a good dramatic example, Matthew. In 2015, it was, it was a crash crisis which had to be had to be stopped and yet millions of, of, of Ukrainians now there are differences in some of the flows and some of the interests but it's quite clear that um, um, refugees can be easily handled and I think um, as an American national um, I'm, I'm proud that, that we, we look at that I mean the amount of of, of refugees that we're talking about being resettled um, is, I believe, Sherbrooke, is this population, of, if, it, if it reaches the total, it's Sherbrooke, Canada, or half of Gatineau. That's nothing in a country of 330 million That's people. Right. And these are productive people. You went so, right to the eastern townships. That was a nice pull, my friend. Okay. Well, well, you know, I hate to I hate to cut this short because it's so rich. I hope, um, I hope the three of you will will join us again, um, and I hope we can talk more. Chris, last thoughts to you. Uh, well, I think this is one of those issues that we often don't see in our newspapers. We only see the negative. And uh, as somebody who grew up in Detroit, I know negative news goes around the world much faster than the good news. But this was a really encouraging discussion, and I hope North America continues to move in a better course to be a welcoming uh, part of the world economy. Amen, brother. Thank all three of you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Absolutely. Well, Chris, it might have seemed unusual, like an unusual idea to have the UN High Commission on Refugees here on Canusa Street, but we're, we're in Mexico City. We're talking about um, the movement of people, and this conversation I found to be illuminating, um, urgent, and important. I thought it was, and also really reminded us that North America is a dynamic society. It's very multicultural, and we've always been renewed by immigrants, but some of the least uh, favored immigrants, some of the people who struggle to come to these shores are people refugees. And uh, the UN Refugee Agency doesn't make the decisions on who gets in. That's the nations themselves. But it does bring some order to what's a very chaotic migration. And you think about the people who are human trafficked or who find themselves without possessions, without a passport, and are just trying to find a safe harbor. Uh, it's such important humanitarian priority. It was great to hear that not only is the UN working, but that Canada, the U.S., and Mexico are talking to each other and actually, I think, making a difference together. 
Absolutely. And to think that we can both solve a humanitarian problem and help the economic situation by by getting people, you know, there are job vacancies everywhere in North America. And if you can kill two birds with one stone, all the better. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you on that. And I also was really pleased to hear that, you know, these were people who talked to Congress. These are people who talked to uh, the executive branch, but also people who talked to communities. So uh, very important piece of the puzzle. I'm so glad we had them. Me too. And to have all three in one, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, that's a, that's part of being here at the North Capitol Forum that I think is uh, an extra special bonus. And yes, I wanted to make too. sure they each got equal time. And it's always so hard. And that episode, I think we could have gone for another hour just because there was so much material. But that's going to be the best 30 minutes I think our listeners have all week. Absolutely. Well, we'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.